Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hi, everybody. It's January the 26th, 2017, and it's 6, 11 p.m. California time. It's time for my private audio call. And tonight, our special guest speaker is Bill Thornton, who we haven't talked to in a long time, but has been on before. We're so glad you were able to make it tonight, Bill. Hi. Hi. Nice to be here. I'm glad you well, made it. Yeah, after all that. But uh, so what? what's new? you got to update us. It's been a couple of years since you've been on, hasn't it? Um, I don't know, but I can say this, that probably nothing really new because the law is fairly stable, at least the common law. So uh, uh, it's not much different today than it was the last time. In fact, I don't think it's changed much in the past 20 or 30 years. It's basically common law is custom and usage. That's all. So um, (laughs) we're pretty repetitive, actually, in some ways. But... um, as you know, the uh, website is 1215.org, and uh, that's a website that you can access with security if you precede it with HTTPS colon slash slash. That S makes a difference. That makes it secure. And uh, the uh, I've read recently that the, the government is complaining that more and more people are using the secure connection, so they cannot really track what you're doing. That's kind of cool. So, um, yeah, I just I'm typing like? it into I'm typing it into the chat. So, so that's HTTPS. Uh huh. That's TT as in Tom Tom and S yeah. as in Sam. Mhm. And P as in Paul. HTTPS colon slash slash and then twelve fifteen dot org. Got it. So, it's a secure website. And uh, basically, basically, uh, I imagine that some of your callers may actually have uh, a question, and uh, uh, I'm willing to well, go in any direction the audience would like to go. All righty. Let me see. Someone has their hand up already. Go ahead, Great Gazoo. You've been unmuted. Hi, Angela. Hi, Great Gazoo. Hi. How are you? Good. Just fine. Hi, Bill. How you doing? So far, so good. All right. That's great. Um, I was poking around on your website earlier, and I saw the uh, uh, thing about the, um, where was it? It was a republic versus democracy. Yes. And part where it says the army knows, and then I I think I clicked on something else. It was the uh, Constitution. Uh, interpretation or what, what's it called? Const- well, do you have a question? 
Well, I was going to tell you that the link didn't work because oh. I wanted to read it. And is it the only place you can get that from is by ordering it for $200 on the government printing office? Uh, no, it should um, download, if, but that's not Republic versus Democracy. I think what you're talking about is the uh, uh, the big book that's printed by the Senate called The Constitution of the United States of America, Analysis and Interpretation. That That's the, the expensive book. But you can yeah. download a... Comp- you can download a complete copy from the website. Okay. And right. uh, it's quite long. I guess it has a couple thousand pages, something like that. Yeah. I thought that might be an interesting read. But I really like the the uh, the page from the Army where, the, where it has the Army manual there explaining yes. what the differences are and how you get from one to the other and everything? Sure. Yeah, that was published in uh, 1928 as a training manual number 2000-25. And, of course, they don't publish it anymore. So, uh, But it goes into the definition of citizenship, defines a democracy, defines a republic, but actually, it's um, pretty simple. Uh, in a democracy, uh, 51 beats 49. That's all. The the uh, uh, the minority has no rights, and the majority doesn't need rights. That's how democracy works. Whereas, in a, and the uh, the sovereignty is in the group. So the People argue among themselves, and then they vote, and whatever the group majority says, that becomes law and is applied to the citizens, all of them. In a republic, the um, they, same deal, the individuals argue among themselves, and they vote, and whatever the group says can only be advice but not mandatory. And the reason is, is because in a republic, each individual is sovereign. And the definition of sovereignty means not accountable to higher authority. So if the group could override the individual, then the individual would not be sovereign. So that's the beauty of a a republic, is that the individual is sovereign, and anything anybody tells them can only be advisory. He doesn't have to necessarily obey. Of course, the the overriding rule is that uh, one person may not injure another person. So in, in a republic, if an individual lets his sovereignty go to his head and thinks that he's invincible and, and not subject to any law, he is subject to the common law that kicks in if he injures someone else. Is that is that a good enough explanation? Yeah, yeah, that's great. And uh, are you still taking court cases and helping people? Have you had any recent uh, court decisions or anything? No, I don't do that. 
um, I, I don't actually jump in on cases anymore. Uh, and the only time I did jump in on cases was if it looked like there was some research I could do or get some benefit out of it. Otherwise, I just uh, answer questions. If somebody has a specific question, I'm happy to answer it. If they, uh, uh, you know, I assume that they know what they're doing, in which case they don't need me. And if they don't know what they're doing, they can ask me a question, and I'll be happy to try to answer it. But I I try to ask people to make their questions specific rather than get into the whole theory of law, because the whole theory of law I put up on the website. So I I can usually tell within a few seconds whether or not a person has studied the website (laughs) because of the questions they ask. Anyone that has a question, press star 8, and that'll put your hand up. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just want to let everybody know, and they should know by now. Just press star 8. I'm sorry. Yes, that's correct. Star 8, and that'll put your hand up. Okay, I'm done. Go ahead. All right. Are any hands up? No. Okay. Well, all right. No one one has a question yet, but sometimes there's a delay, so. Sure. Well, the uh, the problem with a democracy is that it is it has that mandatory characteristic because the sovereignty is placed into the group rather than into the individual. So when when the, you have the sovereignty in the group, then you get a dictatorship of the majority, and of course it's the nature of power. Even if it's group power, it's a nature that it it knows not where to stop. So here in the United States, we have a republic. And so in the republic, you're entitled to uh, not pay any attention to the rules. You just have to be careful that you don't uh, injure someone else. So theoretically, um, the traffic codes... Uh, For example, they say you have to stop at a red light. Well, theoretically, you stop at a red light, and hey, there's nobody around, but then you can just continue on. But in reality, if you have an accident, uh, and it was because you went through the red light, then under common law, you would be responsible. Even, Even though the code does not apply, what does apply is custom and usage, and it's currently custom and usage that when you see a red light, you stop to let the other traffic pass by. And I apologize for using a commercial term called, which is traffic. <laughs> that's that's commercial, but nevertheless, uh, we have to share the road with the commerce. So we, we need to, uh, in order for things to run smoothly, we need to respect the the way things are normally done. So that's, that's um, kind of the nature of, of a republic. A republic leads to freedom because whenever the group starts creating unreasonable rules, the individual can shuck it off. And that's why we have uh, the idea that you're entitled to a jury of your peers. So a peer is somebody who's a member of the peerage. And so back in England, when we had the... uh, uh, we had the nobility. The nobility were the peerage. 
And so if you have a jury of peers, you have a jury of members of the nobility. In the United States, when we broke away from England, uh, we rejected all of all of England's laws, and King George uh, got even with us by canceling all of the official charters, so that uh, theoretically there was no law in uh, on the continent. So the the result was is that each person was king or queen of his or her own territory. And uh, so everybody became sovereign, so everybody became a member of the nobility. So the the result was is that uh, we had the common law, we had no statutory law, and we had to reorganize ourselves. So, and eventually we did because we we made our, our states official and that sort of thing. Um, got together, made our declarations, and, and said, "Here we are, whatever entity we, we were. We were New York or Maine or New Hampshire or whatever, and uh, we did get more formalized. But the common law was what ran at the time because everybody in the United States, or at that time in the colonies, was educated in the common law, the nature of the common law, and in fact, the the whole." place was run by uh, grand juries, and the grand juries controlled things until we got more formally organized and started having things like uh, uh, legislatures who passed statutes and codes. And by the way, statutes and codes, uh, the Supreme Court has acknowledged that statutes and codes are not law. They're actually equity rules. So that's how it is. Democracies um, do fail because they eventually become dictatorships of the majority. And it's like uh, uh, George Bush said, the, the, uh, the younger Bush, when he got elected, he said, I have a mandate. Well, he has a mandate if it's a, dem- a democracy. He does not have a mandate if it's a republic. So what's really important is your status. Uh, are you one of the people of the United States or are you one of the citizens of the United States, the kind of citizen that's subject to the the rules and the, the codes, statutes and codes of the various states? So you, you have to have a proper status. Now, there's two ways to set up your status. One way is to... Um, plan ahead. You can uh, file with the various county recorders and with the Secretary of State and perhaps the Secretary of the United States. You can file with some uh, appropriate paperwork that uh, lets them know that you're not a citizen, at least not a, a complete citizen, that you are actually one of the people, one of the owners of the country instead of one that's owned by the country. And so you can prepare in advance so that uh, you're ready. But the other way is simply to do nothing until an issue does come up. And if an issue comes up, then when you go to court, you make your declaration at that point 
that you are one of the people of the jurisdiction. You're either one of the people of the state, such as, for example, California, or you're one of the people of the United States. And this is wording that we take straight out of the uh, preambles, the preamble of California or whatever state you're in, or the preamble of the United States. Because it says that we, the people, ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. So you'll notice that United States and United States of America are two different words, or two different phrases. So the United States is two words and represents the states that are united, whereas the United States of America is a specific public corporation that is uh, uh, operating by authority of the Constitution. And as long as we're mentioning the Constitution, um, we actually have four constitutions in the United States. Um, the one that we're most conscious of is the 1789 Constitution. However, uh, the Articles of Confederation are considered a constitution. The Declaration of Independence is considered as a constitution. And the, uh, uh, what's it called, the uh, Northwest Ordinance is a constitution. And those four papers can, are, are, can be actively used in order to establish your rights. Um, one of the curious things that about the Northwest Ordinance is that it mandates, I think, that uh, all roads that lead to the Mississippi shall forever be free. And uh, I question the legality of having toll roads in the United States because the Supreme Court in one case had said <laughs> that all roads do lead to the Mississippi, even the new ones, as well as the old ones. If they're public roads, then they have to be free. So I don't know that uh, toll roads actually are, are legitimate. So now anybody want, want to ask a question? Not, I guess we can continue. Um, nope, not yet. <clears throat> Anybody? Oh, okay, Central Florida. You've been unmuted, Central Florida. Go ahead. Hey, do I sound okay? You sound great. You sound good. No, thank you. Um, uh, you mentioned the uh, United States and the United States of America, and uh, I'm, I'm trying right. to recall from memory, but the uh, Articles of Confederation established the United States of America in Congress assembled. Um, and the Constitution is the Constitution for the United States of America. You said the United States is for the uh, Articles and the Constitution, but the United States of America is not. Now I'm all confused. I, I was thinking the United States of America uh, represented the the Union of States, and the United States represents a corporation. Could you clarify? Sure. Uh, if, you, if you look at the, um, at the preamble, okay, and I'm bringing it up on the computer so I can read it uh, directly. Um, let's see. It, it, it says, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, 
establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. So the preamble distinguishes between the United States and the United States of America. So the United States would have to be the states that were united. And uh, whereas the United States of America is a public corporation, which even has a home, it's called District of Columbia. So, and it's outside, actually, the United States of America is outside of the United States because it has duties that would be unconstitutional if these duties were performed within the United States. You know, the, the United States internally is run by law, whereas the world outside the United States is run by power. So if you're going to operate your organization on the basis of power, you could not be inside the United States or any of the states. That's why Columbia is not a state. Okay, that brings up another question. Title 18, I forget the sections um, uh, for a, a jurat without a without a um, uh, without one of those guys with the the stamps uh, without a notary. Uh, one section is if within the United States, I swear under penalty of the perjury of the United States that what I say is true. And the other one is without the United States, as I swear, I'm going to perjury of the United States of America, that what I've said is true. And it seems to me that I've been doing the one where under the United States of America, because I didn't want to be in the United States, the corporation. So I don't know if it all changed or is all mixed up or everything's always backwards. And well, I, that's I, I what me. If you go back to the the wording in the Constitution, the United States of America is the target for the, the that's a creature that is recognized by the Constitution. We, the people of the United States, come from a different entity than the United States of America. So the United States of America is actually a public trust. If you look at the um, uh, at the preamble, you'll see that it has all the elements of a trust. In other words, um, we the people, that makes us the trustors. Uh, the venue is the United States. The purpose is to form a more perfect union and so forth. Um, and the beneficiary is ourselves and our posterity. And the enabling action is that we do ordain, okay? In other words, we declare the law. And the another enabling action, the second one, is that we established it in writing on paper or papyrus, if you wish. So, so the Constitution um, is what, what it is. This Constitution essentially is the Articles of Incorporation for the public trust. And the trustee 
is the United States of America, the corporation. So, well, then that takes me now to the 14th Amendment, where it says a person born in the United States, and I translate that as a man or woman elected to office, born as elected to office in the United States, is a citizen of the United States. Well, a person first born of all, in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof is a citizen of the United States. Right. Well, the, the, first of all, uh, the, the Supreme Court has already said that the Constitution should be read uh, without the uh, fine-tuning of legalistic interpretation. It's supposed to be a plain and simple language, and I think the meaning of the word born back in the days when it was created meant that you were born of woman. So uh, from that, uh, you you have to be born in the United States Okay. Okay. Hold it. Hold it right there, real, real fast. Um, I apologize. I don't want to be uh, uh, sure. uh, terrible, but um, it's not possible to be born in a trust. You're born on the land, so you cannot be born in the United States because it's just words on paper. The opinions of men and women written on paper. It's, you can either be born on Earth or or not born on Earth, but you cannot be born in the United States, if, if I'm making any sense. Well, if we're going back to the language of the day, I think the common understanding of the United States was the states that are united. So, you know, that, that defines the territorial limits. And if you're born within those territorial, territorial limits, well, then you, I mean, that, that's recognized. Or if you're naturalized, if we say, okay, you're a foreigner and you come in here and now you're one of us through the naturalization process, that's the first element of becoming a citizen of the United States. Now, the second element also has to exist, otherwise you're not a citizen. And that second element is that you're subject to the jurisdiction. So uh, if you are... Okay, I'd like to the object there. Okay. Uh, and forgive me, I don't mean to. No, uh, um, but it, it, okay, it says a person born in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, which Correct. to me says you, you can be born in the United States and not subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Am I right or wrong? Exactly right. That's exactly right. So if you if you have both elements of citizenship available you know, applicable, then yes, you are a citizen and therefore you are, you live by privilege. In other words, you are subject. So you have to do whatever your master tells you. You're, you're essentially a public slave. If, uh, if you are not subject, but you are born here, the only other category that's recognized by the Constitution is people. So if you're one of the people, you're probably either born or naturalized here and not subject to the jurisdiction. So the way I see it is the people own the government and the government owns the citizens. So you don't want to be a United States citizen 
you, you would want to be a U.S. national or a state citizen. Uh, correct, but I don't use the word citizen because it's a context-sensitive word. So what it means depends on the words that surround it. So I avoid that, whereas the word people is very clear. If you look at the state constitutions or you look at the federal constitution, they say that the people ordain, the people create, something that shows that there's a pecking order between the people and the the uh, creatures that they created. So you'd be a, a one of the people of Florida or a Florida national. Sure, sure. I don't know you would use the word national, but you're definitely one of the owners of, of Florida if you're one of the people of Florida. Okay, and that would be, to notice Uncle Sam, the Secretary of State, that would be in the form of an affidavit. Well, you could use an affidavit. Uh, I guess we have a train going by somewhere. Okay, if you're, it sounds, if like, you're sounds of, like you're on the freeway or something, yeah. Well, that's all right. So if you're one of the people of Florida, that's, that makes you an owner of Florida. But if you're one of the people of the United States, that makes you an owner of the United States. That puts you on top. So the designation that I use depends on which court system I'm participating in. If I'm filing a case in one of the state institutions, uh, then I would say I'm one of the people of that state. And But I definitely would not say I was a citizen, and the reason I wouldn't is because citizenship, I know, would be interpreted by the powers that be that they own you. Now, the they would interpret that after, say, uh, 1869 uh, to where they would interpret it different, say, back in 1810. Right. Well, the the uh, 14th Amendment didn't come around until the 1860s, you know, so that right after the uh, Civil War. So, yeah, they they uh, before then, there was no such thing as actual legal citizenship. As a matter of fact, my understanding is as people came and went you know, they came into the country and they left the country at will, whether they were so-called citizens. Anyway, the word citizen was used uh, before the, the formalizing of it. It was just used in a generic sense. Uh, it was taken from a word and turned into a term. Well, sure, sure, which is okay. You can do that with, with uh, you know, the statutes and codes which is what they did, or with the Constitution, you can define things. There's actually only two um, phrases that are defined in the Constitution. One of them is citizen of the United States. The other one is treason. Treason is defined specifically because kings in the past have abused that term treason. So the founding fathers had enough of that, so they uh, made sure that it would not be misinterpreted. Well, thank you, and thank you. Uh, thanks for, uh, now, one, other, one other point to understand is that you're not locked out from citizenship. 
you can be a citizen for some purposes and not a, a citizen for other purposes. And I remember reading a, a case one time where the Supreme Court said that uh, that there can be partial citizenship, the, that the the government only had blanket authority if you were a hundred percent citizen. But if you if you are only a citizen for certain purposes, not for other purposes, then they don't have blanket authority. Now they like to assume they do like to assume that they have blanket authority. And that's yet their deal. So if the uh government is coming against you, what you would do is you would do a counterclaim. And, of course, the number one issue that you would raise, the first cause of action, would be jurisdiction. What is their authority to take over the people? You're one of the people. And you do not have to prove you're one of the people. You just simply make the claim. The uh, In court process, the accuser is required to prove his point. He has to provide the proof on whatever his claim is. But if you accuse yourself of being one of the people, you don't have to prove it. You just make the claim, this is what I am. And then it, the burden is on them to come up with proof that you are not one of the people. And by the way, that's never happened when I've been to court. Well, that, that makes sense. And prior to Reconstruction, the courts would rule, ruled that a state citizen was ipso facto a citizen of the United States. And then after Reconstruction, the citizens of the United States suddenly became property. So that, that's why that's well, yeah. what confuses me about the U.S. and well, USA. That's the, well, that's the 14th Amendment because the 14th Amendment defines a citizen as of the United States as being subject. Okay. So if you're subject, that means that uh, you must obey. So the, what you do is when in, in your lawsuit where you're counterclaiming, you make sure that you declare what your status is. Now, the, what I do on my paperwork um, is I, I say, and this is a quote, I say, I am, and I put my name, comma, one of the people of, and then I put either the United States or New York or... Maine or New Hampshire, whatever state I'm in, comma, and in this court of record, complain of, and then I name the specific defendants that I'm suing. So that simple little phrase is really kind of cool because the uh, uh, the attorneys and judges read this thing and they don't really get the significance of those simple little words. But when you say you're one of the people, that automatically means you're sovereign. You don't have to say you're sovereign. People are sovereign. And we're not talking about uh, total sovereignty. What we're talking about is sovereign relative to the government. If If you're part of the group that created the government, then there's no authority on the part of the government to now take over its creator. Okay, so um, so I make sure that I declare that I am one of the people. And then I also am the plaintiff because that means I'm creating my court. A, a court, if you look in Black Law, 
you'll see where a court is defined as the person and the suit of the sovereign. So here you are in your sovereign capacity and acting on, in your own regard. And so you you are suing somebody. You just created your court. Because see, a court is not a place. A court is a concept that you create. So a court is defined as the person and the suit of the sovereign. And so, and then there's a special kind of court called court of record. And a court of record has four uh, requirements in order to be a court of record, okay? And I'll, I'll enumerate them right now. It has the power, uh, let's see, it, it keeps a record of the proceedings. It's proceeding according to the common law, not statutes of codes, but according to the common law procedure. Um, it has the power to fine or imprison for contempt. And the fourth requirement is the tribunal is independent of the magistrate, which is what a judge is. All judges are magistrates. So you you have a court of record, and the Supreme Court uh, of California and other states, when the subject came up, they admit that the highest court of the land is a court of record. It's higher than the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court does not have the authority to uh, contradict or to overrule a court of record. And there's a logical basis for that because remember that the people of the government, there's some statistical, uh, some static there in the background. I'm not sure where it's coming from. Yeah, I don't know where it's coming from either. I'm going to go ahead and and move you out, Great uh, Kazoo. I'm sorry, Central Florida. Well, let's see. Right. If, if you want to come okay, back on, press star eight, and I'll unmute you again. Yeah, you was making too much noise. I'll finish this, and then you can hit star eight again, and and uh, and come back on. So, um, the court of record is the highest uh, court because it's created by the sovereign the same sovereign who created the government. So that's why when you look at the organization of government, the the, uh, the Supreme Courts exist by authority of their constitutions. So uh, if you are the creator or you're a member of that group that created the constitution and instead you create your own courts, you still have the same authority. So you are going to, by definition, you are going to be higher than the Supreme Court. Your court will be higher than the Supreme Court. So is Star 8 up yet? Not yet. I'll unmute him, though, so he doesn't have to. Okay. There you go. Is he still there? Yeah, I'm still here. I hope I lost the static. Sounds better. I don't know what it was. I didn't change anything. (laughs) Background noise or something. I can hear it again. Uh, Are you moving around? Yeah, well, let me mute out and I'll I'll start it again. Okay. Okay, so, Rhode Island, you've been unmuted. Oh, I'm sorry, Bill, did you want to say something? No, go ahead. That's fine. 
Okay, Royal Island, you've been unmuted. Do you have a question or a comment? Yeah, how you doing? Um, can you hear me? Yes, thank sure. you. All right. Um, what's the difference between your style and uh, Carl Lenz's style? Well, Carl Lenz is uh, far more aggressive than I am. I mean, he he goes toe to toe in the in the courtroom, and and uh, uh, you know he challenges the judge. Where I I never challenge the judge. Uh, I let the judge maintain his image as being in control of the courtroom. All of my stuff I do behind the scenes in the paperwork. So mm-hmm. uh, on my website, um, if you uh, go to the home page, which is 1215.org, yes, and, you click, and you click on the red pill, okay, and then that on that page that comes up with the blue background, in the lower right-hand corner, you click on where it says to next page. When you click on that link, you get a, uh, a bubbly red menu in the background there. And on the left side, you'll see where it says procedure. So you click on procedure. And down about the middle, you'll see where it says, what do you do when you are in front of a judge? And this is very important. Uh, this is a very, very simple procedure. You should never, in my opinion, ever argue with the judge. Don't try to show up the judge. Don't try to tell the judge he's wrong because, you know, he's got to preserve his image. Remember, judges are people too. Uh, Not people in the legal sense, but they're humans, all right? And they need recognition. They need security. They want to perform well on their jobs. In my experience, I find most of the judges I've dealt with do have integrity. However, they're badly educated, so it's a burden for me to bring the law to them, the real law, to educate them. And once they understand that I'm not being rapacious, that I'm actually uh, the underdog trying to preserve some sort of right, and I'm not attacking the judge, and the judges get kind of friendly, uh, and they accept it. It's when you have this contest of wills where trouble develops. And so uh, I worked out this procedure of what do you do when you're in front of a judge. And basically, it's a simple process. Whenever the judge does something or anything happens in the courtroom that you know is wrong, All you do is you object, and the judge will probably say to you, well, why do you object? And and you do this calmly. You don't, you know, you're not aggressive. You don't scowl at them. You don't, you know, (laughs) don't be negative. Uh, In a positive sort of way, you say, I object, and you just say it quietly. He can hear you. And then uh, and he says, why do you object? And you're the plaintiff in your case. You own the court. So all you have to do is say, well, it's not my wish that that be done, or it's not my wish that it be that way, whatever. Uh, And remember that there's a centuries-old, or actually millennia-old tradition that the wish of the sovereign is the command to his subjects. So the judge is your subject. And so when you say that something's not your wish, that is a command legally speaking. 
So uh, the judge may be ignorant of that. And so he'll probably say, well, if uh, if that's the best you can do, you're overruled. Okay? And you say, well, if you if you have a chance to speak, you say, well, nevertheless, for the record, I do object. And that's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of that step. Okay? You move on to the next step, whatever it may be. Uh, if you added up the total time that I talk in a court proceeding, it probably wouldn't be more than five minutes because it's all very short. And uh, But what happens is when I leave the courtroom, I then produce a court order reversing or rescinding everything the judge did because he's not allowed to make a decision in a court of record. And so if he makes a decision, he's violating uh, the basic uh, organization of of a court of record. Right, but sometimes the court of of record doesn't have a jury, right? It's just a judge in there. No, 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 no. The jury is, is, you don't have to have a jury in a court of record. You can have a jury, but you don't have to. You are the decision maker. Remember, you have to, to really understand this, you have to put your mind back into the the, uh, 13th century, okay? You're, You're sitting there in your throne. You're the king. And... You have all these people who gravitate to the center of power. They're called courtiers. And these courtiers are sitting around in this courtroom in the king's court. And you might have a judge there. Now, the judge in that situation is all he is is the king's counselor. He's not, uh, you know, he can advise the king. uh, But the primary job of a judge is to obey the orders of the court, whatever the court designates. So uh, on on occasions, I've actually uh, made up an order uh, defining the duties of the judge. If I felt like the judge was too ignorant, then I'd have to educate him. And um, his job basically is to direct traffic. He says who gets to talk next and the procedures, the court procedures for who gets to talk at what time are very clear. So the judge is is being administrative only. He's not really exercising discretion. And so I let him run the court. And if he does screw up, I'll object. And then I told you how it works if when, when you object. So mm-hmm. uh, when I leave the court, I produce that writ of error, and I fix things with the writ of error. And the first time is, is a free trip for the judge. But if he does, you know, we have another court session, and he does it a second time, then he's either stupid or he's uh, testing me to see if I really know my stuff. And if he does, if he does try to uh, throw his weight around, then I will uh, go through the same routine. I'll object. You know, I won't try to resolve the problem in the courtroom. All the attorneys snicker in the background. They think, uh, you know, here's another smart guy. The judge mm-hmm. showed me, you know. But when I leave the court, I then produce another second writ of error. And I'll also produce a a direct contempt against the judge. I'll find the judge to be in contempt of the court, and I will fine him $1. The first one's always $1, because it's not the money at stake here. It's the law. And, of course... Anytime I write a paper, 
I also include with the paper a nice little mini course in law to educate the judge as to why it is that I have that authority to do what I'm doing and why it is he does not have the authority to make any decision. But see, this doesn't embarrass the judge because it's all in the paperwork in the background. He gets to look good in the courtroom and I get to look good on the paper. Okay? Yeah. And it's the paper that counts, not what goes on in the courtroom. So why, why would you prefer to uh, file a counterclaim instead of a like Carl Lance has a standalone claim. Well, it, it, there's really not much difference between a counterclaim and a standalone claim. Uh, basically, uh, a counterclaim means they sued you first, okay? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I just call it a claim or an action at law or a complaint. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't matter because uh, one of the rules of paper writing is that titles do not control. You can name it anything you want. You know, I, right. uh, one time I filed a paper with uh, the clerk, and I had on it counterclaim. And the clerk objected to that. You can't, you can't do that here. He says it has to say complaint. So I said, okay, what else? And he named a couple of other things. When he was all through naming things, he told me that I had to, you know, go back and retype that that cover page with the thing fixed. So what I did is I stood there right there in front of him. I drew a line through counterclaim, and I hand-printed. And I, I used to be a draftsman, so I, I uh, print very clearly. And so I, I printed complaint, and he didn't like the fact that I was calling myself a counter-plaintiff and them a counter-defendant, so I crossed that out, okay? <laughs> and I hand-printed what made him happy. And once it was that way, the uh, the rules of evidence in California say that uh, typewriting is actually machine typing or, or handwriting. Clear, clear handwriting, not just handwriting, but clear. It has to be clear, right. easily read. And so uh, he accepted it, and we got it filed in. So uh, that the so whether it's a counterclaim or a claim really doesn't matter what you call it. The important thing is, is you have to identify who's suing who. Okay? <laughs> that's that's the key thing. So it's mm-hmm. your text, the text that's in there. And I remember later on in the same case, this attorney objected to the fact that in the heading, we had these standard terms, you know, complaint and and plaintiff and defendant, but in the body, I, which the clerk did not read, in the body, I had the terms that I intended. I had myself as the, identified myself as the uh, counterclaimant or, or counterplaintiff, and I identified them as counterdefendants, and this poor little attorney with his limited education he said that he was all confused. He didn't know what's what in this thing, okay? Of course, in my paper, I implied that he should maybe go back to law school or something. <laughs> but, you know, I don't care what the think. What's important is what the judge thinks because I want the judge to understand. And the judges usually are smart enough. They understand, you know. You, you have to make your case. You pretend that you're educating them. In reality, they might already know. 
but um, that, that's what I did in that case. So you, when you do a counterclaim or a claim, either way, the number one cause of action, now cause of action means reason to sue. That's all it means. So your reason to sue could be their abuse of jurisdiction. They, they are taking jurisdiction when they're not authorized to take jurisdiction. So what you do is you challenge the jurisdiction. So you'll say, for example, I have examined all of the paperwork that the defendant has provided or that the counter defendant has provided. And I do not see any basis for jurisdiction on his part. Therefore, I allege that he has no jurisdiction. Now, that's, my, that's actually my cause of action as far as the reason I'm suing him. So um, the beauty of that approach is that the burden of proof now leaves me and is thrown on the shoulders of the defendant. See, normally, see, I'm accusing him of not having jurisdiction, and normally I, as the accuser, have to provide the proof. But jurisdiction is an exception. And when you question jurisdiction, the burden of proof is on him to prove that he does have jurisdiction. And then my remaining causes of actions all hinge on that one point. If, if the defendant gave me a black eye, if he has jurisdiction, then it's okay to give me a black eye. But if he didn't have jurisdiction, then I'm going to sue him for compensation. Mm-hmm. So do you sue the prosecutor? Yeah, do you, so you're suing the man no. acting as prosecutor, or you're suing the man no. who, uh, let's say, the cop or something? No, no, I, I, I never sue the... Well, I, let me take that back. I usually do not sue the attorneys, and I do not sue the judge. Normally, I don't. If 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 their level of corruption is fairly routine and normal, then I don't sue them. The time I do sue them, if I think they have an agenda against me, if they really are trying to do me harm through the legal process, then yes, I will sue them. You can sue them, of course, for any injuries they do to you. But normally, I just let the small points go by. I stay with the main course of it. So yes, I would sue the cops, for example. I would sue uh, whoever it is that caused the injury. If there's a group of people, I'll sue all of them. If they're whoever the troublemakers are, that's what I focus on. I don't sue the clerks because the clerks are just doing their jobs and they think the judge is their boss, so they're going to do what he says. And they don't know. You know, they're just trying. They're just ordinary persons trying to do whatever they've been trained to do. So there's no, I don't see any point in suing everybody who moves, you know, <laughs> anything that moves. Right. I right. go after usually, the genuine troublemakers. Yeah, usually in a state action, you know, you have the state prosecutor, you know, prosecuting, you know, something on behalf of, let's say, one of the cities or whatever, you know, that's why they're the ones that you, well, need to, you know, address the jurisdiction issue, right? Well, the prosecutor isn't necessarily the troublemaker. Got to understand that the person who came to the prosecutor laid it on the table as to why he thinks that you should be prosecuted, and then 
the prosecutor is totally statutorily oriented. He, he probably he's just an attorney, so he probably doesn't know anything serious about common law. So he's going to prosecute. So I'm not going to sue the the attorney, but I will sue the guy that went to the attorney. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, you have to you have to peg down who is the real troublemaker. That's who you sue. Usually, usually a city cop is usually a troublemaker, or a state well, police or city cops. Well, then you sue him. If he's a troublemaker, you sue him. <laughs> You know, I have no qualms about suing somebody who really is stirring up the trouble. See, there there's certain people that are immune from suit, from my point of view. I will not sue them. I won't sue somebody who's stupid. I mean, there's just no cure. He has no intent to do harm. He's just stupid, okay? He thinks he knows when he really doesn't. And the other person that I don't sue would be somebody where an accident happened. Uh, where he had no intent to hurt me. Of course, if he has insurance, I might sue him, <laughs> okay? But basically, I don't sue if there's an honest accident. There's no intent to do me harm. I mean, sometimes you just get bad breaks in life. So I, I just lick my wounds and move on. But if a guy's really targeting me and really wanting to cause me trouble, I will bite back. Right, and most and most constitutions, it says you know that the accused has the right to know the nature and cause. Well, how would sure. you define and explain the words nature and the word cause? I wouldn't. What I would do instead of that is I would say that I don't see why he has jurisdiction, and put the burden on them to prove that they have this the authority to come after me. And of course, the nature is a natural part of the jurisdiction. So they have to come up with solid reasoning, a solid basis for why they are coming after me. So basically, I mean, anybody that has a gun or a weapon or drugs, they never really have any, you know, nature and co- uh, any cause of action, right? Because there's no injury? Yeah, if there's no injury, then there's no cause of action. I mean, you don't have any reason to serve. Why would you want to sue somebody who's not hurting you? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you know, I, I love the yeah. peace. I'm peaceful, you know, mm-hmm. and and uh, so now the first step in a lawsuit, before you even get to court, you need to send them a notice of demand. Right. Okay. And and a notice of demand. Uh, there's on the website, there's an article about what the elements of a notice and demand are. But basically, you give the, the person notice. You say, hey, you know, you're stepping on my toe. And now he has a choice. He can get off my toe and say, sorry. You know, and he didn't mean to step on my toe, in which case, that's the end of it. But on the other hand, if he says, screw you, I'm not moving my foot off of your foot. Well, then you have a, a, a court case brewing. <laughs> wow. So when they say nature and cause, the word cause is, is similar to cause of action. Is, is that what I mean? Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, just just think in normal English. What's the reason for, for suing him? What's your reason? Right. Okay. That's right. what cause of action means, the reason for suing them. 
you got some reason. This guy's stepping on your toe. You say, hey, mm-hmm. buddy, you know, please get off my toe. And then he says, screw you. Well, now you got a reason to sue him. You know? <laughs> if he yeah. gets off your toe, assuming you did no real damage, well, you lick your wounds, so to speak, and you move on, you know. Because right. he didn't intend to. Right. It's very important to uh, have a positive attitude, uh, uh, an attitude that's designed to keep the peace. We're not here to do battle. We're here to live peacefully. Uh, but there are troublemakers out there, and if somebody wants to really take me on, well, <laughs> hopefully I'll be a formidable enemy. Correct. At least that's my hope. You know, no. I've always said that I'm. I've always said that I'm the se- uh, the second smartest person in California. I don't know hmm. who the smartest one is, but I haven't met him yet. You know, he must be out there somewhere. <laughs> but seriously, you know, if, if people accidents do happen. I mean, people do step on your foot, or they they do cause you uh, inconvenience without really intending to, but they're just ignorant. So you kind of have the first step before a lawsuit is you have to separate the troublemakers from the people who never intended to cause you harm in the first place. And once you've you put them in the category of being genuine troublemakers, then you go after them. Yeah, I see. You know, all these cops are usually the troublemakers, you know, pulling people over for, you know, any little thing and taking people's property left and right. And then on top of that, they take your property and then they want to, you know, use it against you. I mean, I thought, first of all, the Fourth and Fifth Amendment is supposed to protect you, and in the Fifth Amendment, you cannot you cannot criminate yourself, let's say. But then they're using your own property to to file a lawsuit against you. You know? Sure, sure. Well, then that's why you do a counterclaim, and you challenge their jurisdiction. What's their authority? You know, and you don't you don't have to give much detail. You just have to raise the question. Like I said, I uh, I say I've examined all of their paperwork or whatever they've provided me. And I do not see that they have jurisdiction. Therefore, I allege they don't have jurisdiction. Now they have to answer that. And they have to answer it with proof. The Supreme Court has said that you cannot assume jurisdiction. They must actually prove it when the question is raised. Right. Yeah, I think jurisdiction is one of the best defenses. I mean, I, I don't believe they ever have jurisdiction either because Unless you're living in D.C., you know, the United States is located in Washington, D.C., you know, and they don't have jurisdiction outside of that that 10-square-mile or whatever, well, you know? Well, the United, the United States of America is in D.C. Well, the United States, they say, and according to the Uniform Commercial Code, so the United States is located in Washington, D.C. But, I mean, okay, what? well, if they want, that's a special application of it. That's not a constitutional definition. Right, so, right, right. We have... We have the constitutional definition created right there in the uh, preamble. So uh, if if we are the people from the United States, then right there, the United States cannot be the United States of America if you hold to those definitions. Now, if they if you find a code which says the United States is there, 
then that just has to be a uh, an alias of the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because in the uh, what is it? Let me see here. Uniform Commercial Code nine dash three zero seven, and it's in all the uh-huh. state. It's in all the state codes. Also, every state has a section for the UCC inside their inside their general laws. So let's say in my state, um, it's Section Six uh-huh. A, and Six A is basically the Uniform Commercial Code, just renumbered a little bit. You know, that's it. Sure. But sure. if so, so for example, in my in my state, it'll be Six A nine dash three zero seven. The last four are the same as the Uniform Commercial Code. The first two are different. You know, so. But anyway, if you go on the UCC nine dash three zero seven, under number definition H, it says location of debtor, location of United States. The United States is located in the District of Columbia. Okay, that's fine. Then that's yeah. an alias for the United States of America. That's not the United States that's mentioned in the preamble. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. But it's just crazy that, I mean, when you look at a map, people think that they know where the United States is, but it's really in uh, Washington, D.C. Well, you said you don't know, but you know now. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> okay, we need to. We've got someone else with their hand up, so okay. can we wrap it up? All right, thank you. Did you All have right. anything else? I didn't want to cut you off, though. Did you? <laughs> no, no, no. No, that's fine. That's great. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, next up is Budman459. Go ahead. And then we have Northern Virginia. Hello, Bill. Um, Have you had any experience with um, adding banks with mortgages? Very little. Very little. However, on 1215.org, you will find uh, uh, on the home page, there's a link relating to mortgages okay and if you uh you go there uh what happened was that uh, i listened to a lecture by a woman who was very strong on uh, uh admiralty law she felt admiralty law was anything or everything really in the court cases and a big part of admiralty law was honor and dishonor and uh she uh, uh, covered mortgages, and in her coverage, she cited a lot of laws and that sort of thing. So it was about, a, I guess, a, an eight-hour lecture, I believe, or four or eight, something like that. So I went through that lecture, and uh, every time she referenced uh, some sort of law, I then looked up the law and I was able to get the latest version of that law. So I put that on the website. <clears throat> so uh, just it's on the it's on the home page, right? It, right. It, on the left side it says mortgage foreclosure notes and unlawful detainer notes. Oh, oh sure. <clears throat> so you click on that and you'll see that there is a uh, basically a five part lecture and um i i just kept very very uh strong or, or very detailed notes of that lecture so you'll find that that's kind of a gold mine of information okay i right. well, i appreciate that yeah now now let me say this though uh, as a strategy 
I would suggest that you um, file a lawsuit against these people or a counterclaim, depending on whether they've sued you already or not. But I would claim, first of all, that no loan was ever made in the first place. <clears throat> Instead of me gathering all the information, I make them gather all the information to prove it. I have them produce the note. I have them produce the mortgage. I have them produce the laws that say they, they can foreclose and so forth. And um, so that would be my first cause of action that no law, I'm, I'm sorry, I meant to say no loan was ever actually made. And then the second cause of action, I would argue that assuming that there was a loan made, they're not the holder in due course. <clears throat> so that would be my two main points in a, uh, in my counterclaim against those people. Now, going back to the first claim that no note was, or that no loan was ever made, you have to understand that a note is only prima facie evidence that a loan was made. A note is not the loan, okay? It's just evidence of a loan. So as long as you don't challenge the note, then a note is, is, uh, is accepted as evidence that a loan was made. But see, if you signed a note, but they never lent the money to you after you signed the note, then that note is, is uh, incorrect. Because that note never happened. I mean, the note exists, but you never got the money. Okay, now the way the, the the banks work is that they create a fictitious money system. They got off the gold standard and now they they created this fantasy system that in a fantasy system you can make up any rules you want. So one of the rules that they made up was that when you sign that note, that note is the same as money. So they, you hand that note over to the bank, effectively what you did in their fictitious system is you gave them the money. So the banks are on a double entry accounting system. And double entry means that they, for every transaction, they have to have an equal and opposite transaction. In other words, they have to show where the money came from and where the money went to. So what they do when they receive the note, which is money, they will then uh, debit their cash account. So the cash that the bank has is increased, and they will credit a brand new depo demand deposit account. It's like a checking account or a savings account. They'll credit the demand deposit account under your name. So that keeps the books balanced. But see, the money came from you. You lent the money to the bank, not the other way around. Then what the bank does, they have a couple games they play. The simplest game is they take that cash and they pay the buyer. I'm sorry, said that wrong. They pay the seller. So you're buying it. You gave the bank the cash. The bank now turns around and pays out to the to the uh, um, to the seller, right? And so, 
no loan was ever made. You created the money. The bank never took a risk. It was never their money. They have no skin in the game, as the saying goes. They took no risk whatsoever. The risk was whether or not your note is good. And by definition, in a fictitious system, the note is good. Okay? It is money. So you create the money. Then the bank turns around and purchases the property for you. And then it, you go through this process. But it's a scam. So they uh, pretend that they lent you the money. And in fact, the note says something to that effect that this is a loan. But the note is a fraud. It's not, it wasn't a loan at all. So that would be my first cause of action in the lawsuit is challenging whether or not a loan was ever made. And the first thing that I would want from the bank is a, uh, uh, an actual showing of their books. Show me their books. Show me what they did. When they got the note, show me where they, what they did with the money. How did they create that money? Okay? And that's where they fall apart. Do you, can't uh, you just can't you just say show me the canceled check? Well, that's the same thing. Sure, you could say that, but I like them to show their books too. I know. Did they did they just you know create a a canceled check? I want to see the entry in their book. Show me their books. So then you'll just have to control the courtroom when, I mean, the, the judges, clearly this argument's been around a while and they're not, they're trying to, to, to bar these types of arguments. It's not a cakewalk, right? Of course it's not a cakewalk. They'll always challenge you. you. You know, there's an old saying that the man who pays the piper calls the tune. You know, where, where does the government get its money from? Gets it from the banks. So when you're suing the bank, you're suing the government source of money. <laughs> yeah, the law says it's, that your local bank is the same as the Federal Reserve. Well, the the the, uh, the national banks, of course, their purpose is to support the federal government, and that's right in the codes. I've read it myself in the codes. It says what the purpose of the bank is. It's to support the federal government. So they do. Well, the federal government turns around. They got to, you know, they're not going to bite the hand that feeds them, so to speak. So they, a lot of these court decisions go in favor of the banks. So you have to really have a solid case. And I maintain that if you can show solidly that the bank never risked its own money anywhere, then it has no no rights. You lent well, the money am, to them. Right now, as I'm in the process of defaulting the bank with those types of questions, they're going to uh, start a foreclosure, and so it looks like I'm going to have to file an injunction. I called the bank today and asked them if they were going to stop based on my notices and, and said I would like to do a, a private negotiations uh, in hopes I could get them to, to stop, and I, you know, otherwise I'd file a, an injunction and then yeah, take them into court. Well, have you already sued them? No, I have not uh, filed a suit yet. No. 
Okay. Well, look, you're dealing with with uh, attorneys who have worked out the routines for taking advantage of the normal ignorant person, and so you know they're not probably not going to pay much attention to what you're saying. Uh, they know they can beat you in courts. That you know that's their attitude. So you're going to have to teach them a lesson. Very well. Okay. Yeah. Now, Thank you. Uh, go ahead. It's very, it's very important that you keep it as simple as possible. Now, I'd like to tell you something about a note. Uh, under California uh, rules, the the I think it's the evidence code, but I'm not sure. But somewhere in there, in the California codes, it says that if a note is lost, that the court will accept a copy as an original. If the party makes up an affidavit stating that it's lost. Now, the trick here is in the definition of lost. The word lost does not mean we don't know where the note is, okay? What it means is we don't have access to it. But, of course, everybody misinterprets, okay? And so they, you know, the ordinary person, and maybe even the the attorneys don't know. But the thing is, is that typically what happens is the, the property gets sold the note gets separated from the uh, mortgage, and so the the note is off there in some uh, trust, securitized in New York somewhere. They know it's there, but it's not accessible to them. So they come back to the court, and very honestly, they say the note is lost. Well, you're thinking, gee, they don't know where it is, but they know where it is. <laughs> but the California Code, so you have to make an issue of that. You have to say, well, yeah, they know where it is, and, and in fact, you can find it for them. If you do a little research with, uh, uh, you know, the securitization process, you locate where that note went, and that note went into a big vat with a whole bunch, you know, 100,000 other notes, and so the uh, uh, it's not recoverable in the sense that uh, it's it's lost its individualized characteristics. It's an investment. It becomes a, I forget what it's called, but it's a, the uh, the Internal Revenue Service in Title 26, they have their rules which say that in order to have this uh, investment trust, they cannot have any actual property. They deal only with paper. So the note gets separated from the mortgage. And once that's done, that mortgage is dead that mortgage cannot be be, uh, be security for the note anymore. And you want them to produce the note because the back of the note is going to have endorsements on it, just like a check. It's treated like money. So when somebody, some bank purchases the note from the other bank, it gets endorsed on the back. And you want to look at those endorsements. And if there's a break in the chain of, of ownership, then uh, the the following ownerships are not valid. So you have them. You have to produce it. Have them produce the original, 
and you examine the original and make sure that it's endorsed on the back. So that's my two cents worth, worth maybe one cent. Okay, <laughs> thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Thank You're you. welcome. Okay, next up is Northern Virginia, then we have Janine, and then we have Donaldson. Okay, Northern Hi, Virginia, Angela. you've been unmuted. Hi. Hi, Angela. Hi, Bill. Thank you. Thank you for a good show. I appreciate it. Um, my first question is for you, Shay. My first question is for you, Angela. What is your Skype name? My Skype name is Victoria Warrior. Oh, Victoria Warrior. Okay, thank you. And my question for Bill is that where do you sue them? With, uh, do you do it in a small court or do you do it in federal court? Any time I file a lawsuit, I always put it in the court that has unlimited jurisdiction. You know, in, in the state courts, for example, the state courts have the small claims court with a limitation, let's say, of $5,000. Um, different court, different states have different limitations, but let's say a small claims is five thousand, and then they have the intermediate court, uh, which has a limit, let's say, of twenty-five thousand, and then you have the highest court, which has a limitation of uh, or no limitation at all. You can sue for any amount, a billion dollars, if you want. So I always file my my uh, case in the court that has unlimited jurisdiction. The filing fees are greater, but then there's no question about the authority of the court. Theoretically, you could file in any of the courts because your court is actually a separate court. Even though you may have the same case number in a counterclaim, it's still a separate court, and a court of record does have unlimited jurisdiction. But you're dealing with ignorance. These people don't necessarily know that. So as much as possible, I try to conform to their rules so long as it does not take away from my rights. And so I go to the uh, to their court of unlimited jurisdiction, and the attorneys think I'm going to the state court when in reality I have created my own court even though it has the same name as their court. Oh, and... Uh... On the paper, you just put it that your court, uh, how do you differentiate that is your court well, you or have, their court? You, you, have, you have your normal heading at the top. You, you can look at, you can go to the clerk and ask her to show you a civil case, for example, and uh, uh, pick out a case, you know, and look at it and see how the attorneys formatted the headings. And you look at the heading and it has, you know, like, in California, it would say the Superior Court of the State of California or in and for the County of Orange. Well, I do the same thing. Look, I'm the owner. Yeah, I own the government, so I own the courts. So there's no problem with me naming my personal court the same as their court, you know, because their court is my court. And uh, so that that's how I make the heading. But in the body, as I said right at the beginning, I have a specific way of writing this. And what I say is I am, and I put my name, one of the people of the state of whatever, or one of the people of the United States. And in this court of record, complain of, and then I name all the defendants. 
It's that simple. You've now created your court. Okay. And my next question is that how much you usually sue them? Well, the uh, when you sue somebody, you're suing for compensation. In other words, when you sue somebody, you're not suing to make a profit. You're su- you put a value on how much your injury is worth. Now, you can go to the law library, and uh, some libraries have cookbooks where that an attorney can use for different kinds of suits, uh, different kinds of injuries. You can claim so much. I know that uh, uh, if you were falsely arrested for each day you're in jail, it could be anywhere between thirty-five to fifty thousand dollars per day. So, because that's very serious to take a person's rights away, but you might be just suing for a thousand dollars. I don't know. It, it you have to evaluate. If you feel like you made a profit, then you're suing too much. If you feel like you were shortchanged, then you didn't sue enough. But this is this is a value judgment that you put on. But it's it's important to understand that you're suing to replace what you lost. If you lost your right, uh, uh, some right, then how much was that right worth to you? And what would it take to make you feel like, well, okay, either way, you're okay. You didn't make too much, but you got enough. A lot of times you can take guidance from the penal codes. If you look up the penal codes for assault, for example, what would the fine be? And then maybe I'd multiply that by 10 or something, you know, because in in uh, non-criminal cases, the numbers run a little higher than what they would be for a fine. But the there's no real formula. Okay, and well, my next... Go ahead. Well, what what would it take to convince a jury that you're being reasonable? Okay. Oh, okay. And my next question is that uh, how do you define the holder in due course? The order in the court, you said? Holder, holder in due course. We say oh, that they are not holders. But yeah, uh, how do you that, define it? And all that means is who owns it and who owned it next. Yeah, they, they say that what? we are hold. They just claim it that we are holder in due course. How you can rebut well, that? Oh, that's okay. You know, and you say prove. Mm-hmm. No, you say prove it. If they claim they're the holder in due course, that's not proof. Just to say that they're the holder in due course. Show us the record. Well, let's see. You signed the note, okay? And then you mm-hmm. gave the note to the bank. So the bank is now the owner of the note. Okay. Now the bank mm-hmm. sold it to somebody else. So what the bank does is it endorses the back of the note and it gives that note over to the next owner. That next owner now is the owner of the note. And when he sells it or the uh, the next bank, whoever sells it, then that person will endorse it before giving it to the next one. So the the due course it means the proper endorsing of the note as it passes from one owner to the next owner. Yes, that means the chain of title, chain right. of uh, ownership. Just look at the back of the note, and oh, by the way, also look at the back of the mortgage because, also known as a deed of trust, 
if you look at the back of the deed of trust, it also must be endorsed. I if there's think, any break um, in the chain... Go ahead. And it's a, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but a very interesting, the size of the paper, the, style, the size of the instrument, because they come with the H by 11 piece of paper and say that this is a copy of the notes, and that is not okay. a... <laughs> And that is not acceptable, right? Well, the, it's not acceptable for proof. You have to have yeah, originals. You, you cannot deal yeah, with copies. And the, and the size, it shouldn't be 8 by 11. Oh, that doesn't matter. Oh, okay. And if they, uh, if they endorse it on the uh, front uh, at the end of the page, but it's not at the back is on the front of the page. The seal is well, that's not acceptable. Okay. Look, you have but to it get, has to have a date? Get, you have to get real here, okay? Okay. It, it's not the form that's important. What's important is what's called substance. What is the reality? Is there any indication on the front or the back? It, it's customary to put it on the back, but it could be on the front. You, you need to look at it and say, is there any indication here that shows who the owner is? No. Okay. If 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 you are the possessor of the note, you are the owner. Now the next question is, where did you get it from? Did you steal it, or did you get it properly? Well, whoever the prior owner was, there should that prior owner should have put a note on the uh, on the uh, instrument saying that he is releasing jurisdiction or releasing ownership of that note to the next party. Yeah. In fact, there's, dated, a whole right? question, there's a whole question about bearer notes. And I think the, mm-hmm. I think one of the appellate courts uh, trashed that idea of a bearer note. You know, whoever has possession is the owner. It has to be endorsed over. I really do appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. No well, more questions. Okay. All right, next up, Janine. There you go, my dear. You've been unmuted. How are you tonight? Hi, Angela. How are you? Hi. Fine, thank you. All right. So what's hey, on have... your mind? Oh, no, I was just wondering, um, you know, when was the last time, Bill, when was the last time you were, you were in court? Gosh, it's been years. <laughs> a decade, I think. Okay. No, I'm I'm only asking because I bought that jurisdictionary that you recommended and it was horrific. Every word in it was legalese, not common law at all. It was legalese. And I actually rang the guy who... Um, um, <laughs> I actually rang the guy who actually made that up and I had a talk to him and... But it's it's just all legalese stuff, you know, plaintiff, defendant and everything. And I thought, and he said, but it's so easy to follow. And I thought, well, I can't follow it. I just I just can't follow it, even with all the pictures and everything like that. I've, um, I, you know, and I said, yeah, but that's going up against, if I did what, what you're suggesting, that's going up against a legal person on for their side. And he said, yeah, so what? You know, well, I'm not a wordsmith, so I wouldn't be... I'd, I'd be absolutely no good because when I get nervous, my whole, my mind actually goes blank and I, I have a hard time talking. So, um, 
But one of the main questions I wanted to ask is, I believe that well, you helped. Wait, wait, wait. No, I just before want to you, ask this question. Before, yep. you, before you ask your question, let me respond yep. to the point you're making because you're making several oh, points and I may have trouble remembering them. So can I respond to your point first? Oh, the jurisdictionary, sure. Thank you. Sure. Okay. First of all, jurisdictionary is produced by an attorney. And as an yep. attorney, he's perfectly trained in the attorney business and how things work in the attorney world. And the the information that he has actually is directly applicable to common law procedures. So it, it is useful. It, he, uh, uh, he uses words, but the difference is, the big difference between the common law uh, court of record and what he, his deal is, he's always talking to the judge. Whereas in the court of record, you are the judge. Only you don't call yourself judge. You're actually the tribunal. You're the person making the judgment. So common law procedure is much more simple. But you can use the tactics that jurisdictionary offers. So he, uh, I would not talk with, uh, with the attorney there at jurisdictionary about common law because he doesn't know that stuff. He's not familiar with personal sovereignty and that sort of thing. But he's very good in his field that he's accustomed to operating in. So I direct people to go to him first because he has, I think, a good overview of how the court process works in their system, which you need to understand their system. And then you take that information, you apply it to your own procedures, and this makes you more formidable as as a, a combatant, you might say. So I I, I think he, he's great, but not exactly because of common law, but because of the basic procedures, because that's what you're dealing with when you go to court. The thing where you have to change your perspective is in who's in charge, who's the boss. You are the judge when you are the plaintiff or counter plaintiff. You're, you're the one who's in charge, okay? And, and, of course, you have to deal with some of these people, but you can do all the same things in your court as he suggests that you do in the equity courts. Hopefully yeah, have you, have, have, you actually, have you actually got that jurisdictionary yourself? Yes, yes. Okay. I've so studied, I keep that's where I learned it. I, I learned it. <laughs> that's why I learned it. I, you know, I, and you have to know thy enemy, okay? If, if you don't understand what he's telling you, then you need to stop there because you do have to know your enemy. You've got to understand their procedures. And if you're having trouble with that, maybe jurisdictionary is not for you. Maybe it's worded in such a way that you're not getting it. But I can say that this, what jurisdictionary is telling people is exactly what I see also when I go to court. And although I haven't been to court in probably 10 years, I've certainly been active in talking to people about their experiences and what to do and, and, and suggesting what, what procedures to follow and so forth, how to take care of problems. So I'm not exactly 
uh, asleep at the switch here. Oh, well, that's a good point. Um, but, uh, look, I do believe that you did help a 65-year-old woman who used your stuff, and she got three years in solitary. Now, could you comment on that, please? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, if you are reading the blogs, especially the one where there's one blog out there where they where they say Bill Thornton got totally uh, beat in the court, uh, these guys don't know what they're talking about. First of all, she spent uh, 470, I think it was 472 days in jail, which is roughly a little over a year and a half, okay? Right about there, a year and a half. And it was not in solitary. She was not put in solitary ever because she never did anything to deserve solitary. Uh, instead, what they did is on three occasions, the judge ordered her to to uh, Patton State Hospital for a psychological evaluation. And each time, the, the hospital sent her back saying she was perfectly fine. And when they tried to do it a fourth time, the hospital sent somebody down there to the courtroom to refuse to take her on the spot. They were out for blood, okay? They were charging her with four felonies, and she she asked them a terrible question that they really, really hated. What she asked them, what is your jurisdiction? That was her question to them. And she went that entire time without ever putting in a pleading. How often have you ever heard of somebody going over 470 days without pleading the case? She did not plead guilty, not guilty, and so forth. What happened in that case was that the judge uh, was very arrogant. You can, If you go to 1215.org forward slash and then the letter Q, that's Q as in Quebec, you will see her counterclaim. You will see her writs of error. You'll see her judgment that she wrote herself. You'll see, uh, uh, and you will see the uh, uh, contempt. She she held the judge in contempt of court and fined him, which of course he never paid. But the point is, is that she built a record. And after she had about a half dozen contempts against him, she issued a bench warrant for his arrest. And that's on the website also. And it was after that bench warrant came out that a week later, the judge brought her into the court and made an offer. He said to her, if you will pay, uh, if you will plead guilty to a misdemeanor for passing a bad check, I will give you credit for time served, no fine, immediate release, and dismiss the four felonies. And she said, I'll think about it. So overnight, she thought about it, and what she determined was that uh, he was making a direct offer to her, but he did not pass it through her court. So the next day, she went back, and she accepted his offer, and she got immediately released, but her court still had that judgment against him. That He was still under the jurisdiction of her court, because he never negotiated with her court. He only negotiated with her personally as a defendant. But that's how it turned out. So she still has that judgment against him.
Okay, Janine, is that it for you? That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. I don't really but understand. They, I don't really understand what Bill said there, but I'm sure somebody can enlighten me as to what Bill said there because I don't understand what? what he said. I'm only learning all this. So you don't. You don't have to stop there. Which part of it don't you understand? About the the one where um, he still had something with her court. Well, see, what happens is, first of all, let's go back to the, what the definition of a court is. If you look in Black's doc, uh, Law Dictionary, you'll see that a court is defined as the person and the suit of the sovereign. So you are the sovereign. You're the queen. And, and so when you sue somebody, you just created your court. The court is not a place. The court is actually a, a created concept. You might say it's a fiction which has two elements. One element is the, the sovereign herself, and the other element is the lawsuit. Put them together, you have a court. So that court can be anywhere you are. But what I like to do is I like to file the papers with the clerk of the court because the clerk is the warehouseman. The clerk's primary responsibility is to protect the records of the court. That's all she does. So... Yeah. So you've yeah, created your own it's, it, that's, that's not really what's got me. What's got me is he offered her, you know, uh, he offered her a deal. She accepted yes. and she still yes. got her ass in prison for 472 days. Well, of course. That's the real world. You know, we can talk theory all day long, but there's also the real world. And so she, she was a tough little critter. And but she would not. That he would release her, didn't he? He did he release offered, her, yes. He offered her a deal. Well, if he released her, right. how come she got 472 days in jail? Because that happened before the deal was made, not afterwards. In other words, if she didn't make the deal, she'd probably still be there, right? Well, that's true. I mean, well, I don't know if she would or not. But uh, what I do know is that wow. apparently we scared to me. That's extortion. Or something. Again? It's, well, it's, it's, like a, it's like a bribery or extortion. I'll let you out. Here's the deal. You're right. But you've served nearly 500 days anyway. You know. Correct. Come, Correct. What, what, that's so uh, just... Uh, I don't need, I well, can't even talk about it. Well, but did you look at the judgment that she had against the judge? That's on the website, too. That judgment is a good judgment. Okay? It got filed in. You can see the file stamps. All right? That got filed in against the judge. Yeah, but nothing's happening so, with that, is it? Is, is anything happening with that? No, because the reason is is that if you spend that much time in jail, you get burned out. She she spent a long time psychologically recovering from that. I mean, you just lose your energy. Believe me, being in jail is not fun. She was tough. She, you know, did her part, and she could have been out earlier, but she refused to, to buckle, and she kept challenging their jurisdiction. Finally, when... She won up the judge by issuing a bench warrant for his arrest. He realized he could actually end up in jail himself. 
that's when he became a nice guy. Okay, but that didn't get him off the hook because that judgment is still there against him. And I've talked to her recently, and she's told me that she's warming up to the idea of enforcing that judgment now. So you're going to help her with that? Well, sure. Okay. No, I'd love to hear the outcome of that. Obviously, obviously she needs some help, you know, from someone who knows what she's doing. Obviously, she did her homework, too. I mean, she. the only reason I helped her in that particular case was because there were some things that I needed to research on. And you see, up until that case happened, my attorney friends kept telling me, oh, well, you just got got your results because the judge didn't want to argue or the judge was just a nice guy and, and so forth. Here, they were out for blood. They had four felonies against her and they... and. When you read that case, you can see where the judge, when we serve the judge, this, <laughs> this is a little side story on this case, but the uh, we had this 70-year-old woman uh, who weighed all of probably 100 pounds and had arthritis, and she served the judge with one of, of uh, Aurora's legal papers, okay, gave it to the marshal in the court. The court was not in session. She gave it to the marshal so that the marshal could then pass it on to the judge. And it was a proper legal service. The judge comes in. He finds out he's being served. He he yells at the lady, and then he orders his marshals to go after her. Four marshals beat the crap out of her, left her black and blue, and then he put her in jail for five days for contempt of court. And court was not even in session. So this is the kind of judge we were living doing with it was a really really tough case and uh and i knew this lady from before and she was the kind of person who did her research and when people wouldn't listen to her but just decided to prosecute despite the fact that she was right all along so uh i helped her and it was a wonderful case in the sense that we figured i was forced to figure out how to arrest the judge and you can see it on there. We have the arrest warrant on the uh, on the website. And and when that arrest warrant came out a week later, we had the nicest, sweetest judge you ever met. Okay, what a contrast, huh? And so he uh, uh, she got that got her release, and and so then she spent uh, several years recovering really from the psychological effects. But now her spirit is risen because that's her basic nature, and she's going after that judge again. And with well, the judgment, I think, all- I, I think with a with a man like that that acts as a bully and a judge, you know, yeah. and everything like that, I think I think a few good men or a man that knows his stuff in the law, backed by a whole lot of juries and everything like that, a common law court of record with a trial by jury, should nail his friggin' ass to the wall. I'm sorry, but it's, it, you know... No, you're right. Men you're right. or women who are judges, they right. must be above, above reproach. You know, you're beyond right. reproach, they must be so honourable right. in what they do. Look, look yeah. you're absolutely right in everything you're saying, but you're, there's one more factor that you need to put into your mix there, and that is that she went through 472 days in jail and that has a tremendous psychological impact 
and I don't care who you are, when you're in that long, it does grind down on your, your personality. And so she spent a good amount of time recovering from that. So you got to understand that, that it, it, a person who spends that much time in jail typically gets pretty well beaten down. Okay, and so you have to cut them some slack in that respect. Because you, everything you say uh, is absolutely no, I, right. No, I, I totally, look, I totally agree with you there. I have psychologically been there, you know, with sure. what I've been through. Um, there, there would be other people, you know, that have had their children taken off them. They've, they've yes. been there. You know, they've also been there. There's, there's just so sure. many cases of of people that have been in that situation where they have been psychologically, you know, like what the hell is going wrong because I have done everything correctly, I have done everything right, and this is still happening. Well, that, that's easy to explain. Um, I, the last time I heard about it, uh, the, the federal government pays $50,000 a year to Child Protective Services for each child that they kidnap. That's a pretty good incentive, and I think it was a—I think it was a Michigan case. I'm not sure, where the parents had the resources to do battle, and on discovery, they found a memo from management to the employees of Child Protective Services, telling them that that they had to go out and grab some more kids because they needed it for their budget. Okay, so if you want to talk about corrupt, yes. Yes, no, I've, I've heard about that. I've heard about, you know, child protection services. They get sure. like four and a half grand each child. And every oh, every yeah. child every child that the judge hands over to the state, he, he, he gets a little 2% or 5% into his little investment sure. fund for when he retires and right. all that sort of thing. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. This is the stuff that needs okay. to be brought forward. Well, it is brought forward, but the problem is, is that the general public is not interested. You know, you, you talk to the general public and they say, problem, what problem? I don't see any problem. Everything's okay. You know, they, you don't know there's a problem until you're impacted by it. That, that's the typical person. So sure, we, we have that kind of thing. So the, the quality of government is the net difference between those who are interested in, in government and those who are not interested in government. And as, yeah. as Lord Acton said, Lord Acton said that, that power is abused and absolute power is abused absolutely. So if you want if you want me to agree that we have problems, yes, you got my agreement. There are problems there. It is correct. Right. Yes. So okay. I can understand correctly because I am learning, Bill, So and, and I do have a uh, impairment. So um, it takes me longer than usual. You know, my sons get it faster than I do. One's, one of my sons is autistic. He gets this really – he gets – Carl's stuff really fast and he pulls me up when I'm wrong but <laughs> but um yeah but um now that that case that you were talking about with that woman that we were that we've discussed is would sure. is that is that case classed as a criminal or a civil case neither it's classed as it's, a common law case oh, and it's, it's actually it, it's actually above that it's 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 a what it is is it's the sovereign uh, applying the law of the domicile, meaning his own law. So it's not criminal. Criminal has to do with with the government, 
a tort has to do with one citizen versus another citizen violating that citizens uh, or maybe some codes relating to torts. But then you have the law of the domicile, which is made up entirely by the the sovereign. So you just mentioned the citizen then. So the citizen is actually sure. owned is actually owned by the government anyway. So you have to, as you said right. before, it has to be one of the people. But um, yeah. anyway, I was just asking, um, I was just curious, I was just wondering if you've ever won a criminal case. Well, my lifestyle is such that the only criminal crimes I've ever committed were traffic. <laughs> and those were all before I learned this stuff. <laughs> I've I've kind of hoped I'd get a ticket, and for some reason I don't. Maybe it's because I'm too respectful of other people's rights and their expectations, you know, because the custom and usage when you're on the road uh, is very clear what people are expecting of you, what you're expecting of others, you know. So I don't go through red lights. Uh, I speed whenever everybody else is speeding. In other words, I go with the flow of traffic. So uh, yeah. if they're going over... Limit. I do too, but I haven't had the run-ins, um, and I'm not out there challenging them. I did get stopped by a cop one time. Uh, actually, it was a pair of cops, and this happened about oh maybe six months ago. And uh, the uh, they wanted my insurance and and uh, registration, and my car was registered, and and uh, and I did have insurance. And uh, but I did not have a driver's license, and so uh, they wanted to know why. And I said, "Well, I'm just traveling." I said, I, "I'm not. I wasn't driving." And they said, "Well, who was driving? A ghost?" <laughs> and I said, <laughs> "No." And I and I was friendly toward them. You know, I I didn't scowl at them. I didn't, you know, say, "Hey, I got rights. You can't stop me." I didn't go into that sort of crap. I just was pleasant with them. You know, and I said, "No." I said, "I, I said." You know, you're looking for a reason why you need to arrest me, and you're being very technical on that point. So I'm being te very technical, too, and as a point of technicality, I wasn't driving this. Sure, I was controlling the car, but I was not driving a motor vehicle. And I said, look at my license plate. My license plate says not for hire because I have a, a farm uh, license. So and that that farm license was in Nebraska, and by the way, I was in California at the time I got stopped. So anyway, they they went back and I guess they conversed among themselves. They came back. She gave me the paperwork back. She said, "We've decided not to arrest you, but we're not going to permit you to uh, drive your car." And I said, "Well, okay. I'm only four blocks from my destination." I called my friend, and you know, I I played their game a little bit. It, 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 Obviously, oh yeah, no, I gave no. I've I've gone through a red light, and I just did it last last night. I just went through a red light because, in the law book, in the rule book, it says stop if you can, okay? Stop if it, if you can. But I was doing okay. seventy. I couldn't stop on a dime, so I had to go through it. You know, so I mean, sure. it, you know, they they would have seen that if I I would have had I would have it would have been worse slamming my brakes on. You know, sure, and sure. like that. Yeah, but I was just wondering if you may have helped anybody that's been, you know, that had a criminal case. 
Well, I help lots of people in the sense that they ask me questions, I give them answers, just like you and I are doing now. If they get specific questions, I give them specific answers as best I can. So, yeah, I I, I get a lot of exposure and, and uh, you know, in this, and I get feedback as to how it worked out for them and that type of thing. But it's pretty much a routine now for me because uh, what I see is that we have a relatively simple procedure as compared to how they do in the statutory courts. And I'm the boss. I make the decisions. I decide what's important, what's not important. That's that's the position I take. Or people that I'm talking with, I show them how to take that position. I mean, you're the owner of the court. You know, you're the owner of the court. You're the tribunal. You're You're the queen sitting on your throne, and you created your court when you sued somebody. Yep. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Thank you, Angela. Thank you, Janine. Have a good one. Okay, next up is... Oh, I'm sorry. Ah. Next up is uh, Hyperloose. Hyperloose. Oh. You are unmuted. Hi there. Hi. 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 Bill, have... uh, are you familiar with uh, this executive order written by Bill Clinton? Uh, hold on, let me get back to the uh, the number here. Uh, it was in 1999. No, no. Okay. Okay. It was about. I'm not. Okay. Well, it's it's about. Uh, the title of uh, federalism, and it's a, it was about jurisdiction, basically about uh, not I'm sorry, uh, about your status, and uh, uh, and uh, this uh, the website um, they have uh, this document that you can file uh, that's called a condition precedent PR. E C E D E N T. Are you are you familiar with that? Well, that's, no, that's, that's just uh, that's uh, that's 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 so where were uh, we? Um, the condition precedent. Oh, yeah, all you're saying, you make up an affidavit and you say, here's here are the conditions at this time before before we got to this point. That's what a condition precedent would be. Right, and 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 that's what the, the it's just a small document, and it's it's basically you know saying um, uh, I am a flesh and human being, blah blah blah, you know, uh, and uh, you can tell um, that. You can say that if you want to do that. I, I, I don't like to go into that kind of stuff. You know, that's that I call that patriot stuff, okay? I mean, uh-huh. they're, they're, I have a very, I, I should say maybe, at least to me, is a very simple approach. First of all, I look to the highest authority uh, in our land as far as written law goes, 
and that is the Constitution. Now, the Constitution has the preamble, and the preamble defines the relationship between the people and the government. So if I say I'm one of the people, that puts me above the government. I don't have to say I'm a man on the land. I don't have to say any of that stuff. I mean, my relationship is defined by the preamble. I'm I'm above the I'm the higher authority. So like I said, when I lay out the I said it twice before and I'll say it again here, that in my lawsuit, the very first sentence says, I am, and I put my name, one of the people of, and then I put the jurisdiction, whether it's the state name or the United States. And in this court of record, complain of, and I name all these people that, that are defendants. And that, that establishes me as the higher authority, and it's their problem to prove that I'm not one of the people. And they never do. But um, I've heard a lot about the uh, the UCC actually being, you know, the law of the land uh, per it's se. Not. It is not. The UCC is not law at all. The UCC <laughs> is is code, statutes and right. codes. Let me explain what the UCC is. What happened was that there was a big committee formed. All the states sent representatives to this committee. They spent several years putting together and refining the Uniform Commercial Code. At that point, all the Uniform Commercial Code was, is uh, it was a, a, uh, a work product. It was the output of this committee, but it was not law. Then each of the representatives went back to his home state. Each state then adopted that, that UCC and each state put its own modifications in. So the Uniform Commercial Code really isn't that uniform. And so if you get the, uh, the, the big book from the committee, uh, in their book, they list which one of the UCC provisions were modified by which states. Okay? So you have to look at, at your state commercial code which is also like in California, they call it the Uniform Commercial Code, but it's only uniform for that state. It's not uniform for all states. And it's just code. It's just legislated code. It is not law. Law means common law. If, if, if you call it code law, then it's basically the codes. If you call it statutory law, then it's the statutes. But if you just call it law without any adjective, then that means common law. And when you read the Constitution, when the Constitution refers to law, that's what they mean, common law. Okay. Okay. Now, I, I understand. I, um, you know, when, 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 you're, when you're not as, you know, as well-versed as you are, you know, you, you, and you, you, you know, and you didn't get an education uh, in law, you know, formally, you kind of pick stuff up here and there, so it's easy to get off on these, these, uh, you know, these rabbit trails and get. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, but I appreciate you, you know, uh, explaining it like that because it, it uh, I understand, I understand what, you, what you're saying. There. So that's why, that's why 1215.org exists. Now, let me say this: that a lot of people 
will go to Google. They'll bring up Google and they'll put 1215.org in the search box and search for it. And that's the wrong approach because what that does is that leads you to archives and, and the wrong things and lots of choices and you don't know which one is which. So at the top of your screen, there is a place to type in the actual 1215.org. And if you put in the HTTPS colon slash slash in front of it, that gives it a secure connection which cannot be monitored. And if you, that will take you directly to the proper website. So don't use Yahoo or Google to search for 1215.org. Instead, go directly to it by putting it in the address box at the top. Yeah, I've, and that's I've been... The, Okay. That's, the purpose I didn't, I didn't of, interrupt you. Uh, I, was, I was just going to say, yeah, I've been looking at, at the site, uh, the, the, you know, while you've been speaking, and uh, it, it's a very good site, you know, a wealth of information. Well, thank you. But the, the purpose of 1215.org is to share the research that I came across. And so, good, bad, or indifferent, the... the you know, I, I put this together, and hopefully people will benefit by it, and it's free. It's wonderful. Well, look, uh, thank you uh, for your time. Thank you for uh, speaking with me. Thanks, Angela. Okay. Thank you. Okay, mm -hmm. next up. Next victim. See, how you doing? How you doing, Bill? So far, so good. Uh, we lost the one, the last one, uh, Donaldson, I guess. Uh-huh. I guess he had to go. So that's it well, on the questions. Can... Anybody else, press star eight if you want to ask a question. Otherwise, uh, uh, I'll leave it up to you. What do you want to do? Well, I call it we... night. we've gone the two hours. Oh, well, okay. Um, do you have any questions, Angela? Do I? Um, sure. See here. Hold uh, on. I'll, I'll ask you a question. Here. Um, You're allowed to ask questions on this show. Oh, thank you. Let's see here. You wrote down, or you said, I am, comma, one of the people of. Now, would it be okay to just say California instead of saying the state of? Sure. So I am one of the well, people of California, and in this court of record, what? Complain of, and then I list the defendant's names. Now, the first part you didn't quite quote correctly. It's I am, and then you put your own name, comma, one of the people of California or one of the people of the state of California. It doesn't matter. And, and then, and in this court of record, complain of, and then I list the names of the, of the defendants. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I'm okay. going to add it to so my now, uh, my list okay. of uh, golden nuggets. <laughs> sure. Now, the names, what I do when I'm suing as a strategy, now remember, there's law and there's strategy. When you're talking strategy, you have lots of choices. And so as a strategy, when I file a lawsuit, I do not sue the officers. Like, you know, officer so-and-so, the cop. What I do is I sue the cop 
in his own personal capacity as a normal human. Okay? In other words, I just put his name. I don't put that he's an officer. Right. Okay? So I'm suing that individual. It's me as an individual suing him as an individual. And and um, I do not sue the state. And by the way, the 11th Amendment prohibits suing the state for money. You can sue the state for anything except money, but not money. The Supreme Court did a special interpretation of the 11th Amendment. The... the uh, Article 3 talks about you being able to sue that the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction when you sue a state. However, the 11th Amendment got passed because somebody sued a state and won big time, and it scared all their politicians. So they quickly created the 11th Amendment, which basically said you could not sue the state. However, the issue came up again later, got to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court took a real close look at the 11th Amendment, and it looked at the legislative history. And what the Supreme Court said was that the purpose of the 11th Amendment is to protect the treasury of the state. As long as you're not suing the state for money, then you can sue the state. Also, the 11th Amendment does not protect the employees of the state. So you can sue the employees for money. You can sue the judge. You can sue the prosecutor or whoever, any employee of the state. You can sue them. That's okay. But you just cannot sue the state in such a way that it affects its treasury. So when you, when you do a counterclaim, if you're sued already, I also, not only do I name the individual persons, I also name the court. And I'm not suing the court for money because that's a state agency. Instead, saying that it's an inferior court, and as an inferior court, it has decisions which cannot be presumed to be reliable. They cannot be presumed to be valid. And that's not my words. That's actually the words of the Supreme Court. Any court which is not a court of record is an inferior court. And so as an inferior court, you cannot presume that its decisions are valid. On the other hand, the decisions of a court of record are presumed to be valid until proven otherwise. So that's the question say about it. So... uh, that's why I always sue in a court of record. record. We have record three more is, people with their hands up, so. Okay. Great. Well, um, a court of record is a superior court. Now, in California, we have we have superior courts in name, okay, but not in function, all right? Yeah. So, uh, there you go. Okay, we'll answer questions. Okay. North Georgia, you've been unmuted. Go ahead. Hi, Mr. Thornton. Hi, Angela. Hi. How are you guys doing? You're okay. So far, good. I'm freezing, actually. <laughs> cold in here. Right. I know. Well, um, you were saying that we can't sue the state. So, like, we're in Alabama. So, we have, like, the um, 
Well, I guess every state has it, but well, I know I guess we were asking to be in Georgia because that's where we're located. But um, the if you have an adjustment bureau, how does that work? Because the adjustment we bureau, takes, I don't, I'm not catching everything that's being said. We have a bad connection. Oh, okay. Can you hear me now? Well, I hear you, but okay um I can when you're dealing you. when you're dealing with the adjustment bureaus, like what do they do then since you can't sue the state, but then the state tells you to send in claims for whatever to the adjustment bureau, so how does that work? Oh, what okay. are they actually well, doing if the let says that let me explain the concept of a court of claims that's what the adjustment bureau is it's the court of claims. Uh, going back into English law, the uh, there the king was there by divine right, and he uh, he was the source of the law, and God spoke the law through the king. That was their theory, and so um, if the king could do no wrong, because if the king did injure somebody, uh, it was presumed that the king changed the law for that moment because he was the source of the law. So the mm-hmm. king could not break the law no matter what. Therefore, he had sovereign immunity. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, there were some kings that were abusive. And so the uh, what happened was that they, the public pressure was such that they had to acknowledge that, well, wait a minute, if somebody is unfairly injured by the king, there ought to be some sort of remedy here, even though the king is not really responsible. So they came up with this concept of a court of claims, which is a moral. And you would present your claim to the moral court, the court of claims. Mm -hmm. And if they felt like, well, you really had an injury that was worthy of compensation, then they would take the funds and give it to you. Okay, that was that was the theory. Well, in in real in the real world what actually happens is they use the process to delay paying. They they try to wear you down and they don't pay. But so you have the court of claims on the federal level, on the state level you have uh the court of claims or they have what's called risk management. Or in your case, you have a different name. So, But that's what it is. It's a moral court. And then what they like to say is that, well, you cannot take your case to a regular court until you have passed your case through their their moral court. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's what that's all about. Right. So in, in, uh, in the court of record, you... Okay. Yeah, I I think I do agree with you because um, it does say that they pay claims that are made in good morals. I didn't hear what you said. They say that they they pay claims that are made in good morals. Yeah, they are a moral court, yes. Right, right. And see, that's what the Adjustment Bureau does. It says yes, that the adjustment claims, bureau is a yeah. A, so now, just, yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying. That is awesome. Okay, so that's why that's like that. It's just a different name for uh, for the court of claims. That's all. A different but name. Uh, it, 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 oh, okay, okay. 
how how are they how did they act right? Um uh so you saying it's another name for a quarter claim. That's all it is. It's the it's that that's same all it is. Then right. you've got it for their card. That's that's their position. Right, uh, right, because right. you're one of the owners of the state, if you're in your sovereign mm-hmm. capacity, mm-hmm. Uh, technically you don't have to do that. But I would. I would go through right. their 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 game, you know, just right. that way they, they have no excuse. No, Right, right. That's my philosophy. I feel like you should always do everything that comes to your mind to do if you feel like it's right and it makes sense and it's peaceful. Uh-huh. So that no one sure. has an excuse to say, well, no, you didn't do that because you could have came to us, but you didn't come to us. And like, don't give them that, you know? You just do it anyway. Sure. So um, do you ha- do you know um, how their quarter claims are, like, when you go through these adjustments? I couldn't understand bureaus and risk- when we're going Do through I have risk management When we're going through risk management and things of that sort um, and these quarter claims and stuff, like, um, do they do pretty good on that type stuff, or? No, you never do good on it because they always use it to delay and pay you. I mean, that that's their game. So yeah. they they abuse their authority. Okay, they they don't right. stay true to the purpose of of the the system. But that's right. okay. You know, you just go along with it, play their game, and and you simply take away all of the excuses they have. Um, the regular courts. Do not let take a case until you have exhausted all of your administrative procedures. Right. That court, right. Your, that system is an administrative system. So right. when you've exhausted that, you say, okay, they these people are, will not settle. They won't do what's right. So now you have to sue them. So then you, now you have to go to them. Oh, okay. So then but now again, you have to go to the Fed or whatever. Right. Right. But again, the 11th Amendment says that you cannot sue a state for for money, all right? Now, mm-hmm. there, the exception to that is this. If a state steps out of its role as a state and mm-hmm. starts participating in the, con, uh, in the commerce, mm-hmm. then they become like any corporation. They're subject to suit for money as any other corporation would be. Right. So, so you kind of have exception. to paint that that way, really, is what you're saying. Well, yeah, you 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 structure your case so that you want to show that they're actually going beyond being just a government, but are actually getting involved in the commerce. Commerce, right, 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 right. Okay, well, thank you, Mr. Thornton. Thank you, Angela. You're welcome. Thank you for coming on. You're welcome. Next up, Bye-bye. we have um, Traveler One. You've been unmuted. Hello, hello. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, hello. I, I was going to ask if uh, Bill had ever had any discussion about a strategy for a jury to present a standing status to a jury, all these things you're talking about. Well, first of all, you don't need a jury unless the defendant demands it. So if you're going to sue somebody, you don't demand a jury yourself because all that does is dilute your authority. You have the authority to make the decision. If you ask for a jury, then all you're doing is giving up your authority to 12 other people. Correct. I 
I don't like to give up my authority. And in my my involvements, uh, I've never had the opposition ask for a jury. I mean, they figure the judge is in their hand. You know, I don't have an attorney or the person I'm helping does not have an attorney. So they figure, oh, we got this case cooked, you know. We we don't have to worry right. the judge will. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm just curious. Okay, there you are. All righty. Next up, let's see here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Next up, Budman 459. Back. Go ahead. Uh, you answered my question. You know, so the, the but but another question is they are um, always operating operating in a commercial capacity or using Federal Reserve notes. So you can always make that claim. You just have to put it in your document. Is that what you're saying? So that you can sue them for money. Well, I, um, I understand what you're saying, but I never use that tactic myself. I just go ahead and accept paper dollars as real money uh, because if I get the real money in a judgment, they actually paid off, I can do things with it just like I could with gold or silver. So uh, I'm talking about... I'm talking about regular money. I'm talking about paper money. That's that's not what I meant. What I meant, you you just said that um, you can't sue the state for money unless they're in a commercial capacity, correct? Right? Oh, that is and correct. They always, and they always are. You just have to be sure and, and make a point of that in your pleading is what you're saying. Well, if you can prove it in your pleading, sure. But, you know, the way I view government is that the government is there making up rules for people to follow. That's called the legislature that does that. And as long as they're just making rules, they're not responsible anyway. What happens is when they, like in traffic, for example, not only does the state make up the rules, but they also have quality control officials called uh, traffic cops who give tickets, who monitor your performance. They give you licenses. Because and, and when they give you a license, they are now responsible, okay? So uh, that's where they, they get exposure. As a matter of fact, uh, the states are requiring that you have insurance. And the reason that you have to have insurance is because the state is responsible for your performance. When they issue that license, they become your partner. And now if you get into an accident, and it's your fault, the state has to pay. So to avoid that responsibility, they require you to have insurance along with your license to protect themselves from the liability. See, what they've done is they've participated in the commerce that way. They didn't just make up the rules. They're actually in there promoting it. They're promoting safety programs and so forth. Does that help? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Which, of course, uh, insurance is always uh, maritime, which is a commercial activity. Yeah. Right. Well, it is, but like for instance, I buy insurance, and I have a simple reason for buying insurance. It's because I can't afford the liability if I had an accident. So, you know, it's my choice that I decide. Well, I like having that kind of a contract. However, having a contract like that. That doesn't mean I'm engaged in contract in, in uh, commerce. 
the insurance company is engaged in commerce, but I'm not. I'm buying their their product. That does not put me in commerce. I'm the end user. Okay? Yeah, you're just under contract. Yeah, it's just a contract. Look, if I go to a store and I give the uh, sales clerk money and she gives me a, a pencil, there's a contract right there, but that does not give her the authority to control the rest of my life. It's a contract only for purposes of purchasing a pencil. So if I have a driver's license, that driver's license only covers me for commercial work. You know, that's a commercial license. In other words, now I'm authorized to drive a taxi cab because that's considered commerce. Thank you, Bill. You're welcome. Okay, next up, Panhandle, Texas. You've been unmuted. Hello, Bill. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering, I've got a couple of questions here that I wanted to or just one question, okay? Sure. Um, uh, does any judge, justice, lawyer uh, have the have the right? Or no? Does any judge or or justice lawyer have? Uh, let's see, have. Um, I think I know where you're headed if you want to let me. Yeah, I'd just like to know if they have an oath of office in the continental United States. Yeah, I don't don't care if they have an oath. Where would I get that? Well, you'd probably go to the council. If they they, uh, practice, uh, have a license or practice law in the United States, you know, they have to, don't they have to take an oath? Of uh, office in order to well, do that. And where do. would you get? Where would you get that? Well, if you want to look up an oath of office, if it's uh, if it's an attorney, you'd probably go to the bar association on their records. Um, if you're talking about a judge or a prosecutor, somebody who's actually on the government payroll, then you would probably go to the county. Uh, clerk, th- that would be the one who would keep the records of the county, yeah, and yeah, you might even go, you might even go to the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State might have a copy. Different states have different procedures. But that's not with the continental United States, right? Well, I don't get into that. I, I you know, that's the there's a lot of of talk about. Well, the the uh, ever since the Congress disbanded since DA, that uh, that we haven't had a legitimate Congress since then, and so far I, I get all that talk, but the truth is is that we have a real world, and I go ahead and play along with their game. I don't say the Constitution is not valid anymore; that only the original Constitution with the original Ten Amendments is valid. I know some people claim that. But, you know, I have yet to have a single attorney 
or judge or anybody tell me that the that the Congress uh, has no authority or that the uh, Constitution is not valid. Okay, they don't, they don't say that to me, and um, and they don't say it to the people that I've been helping. The the, the I just play along with it if they. If we're taught that the Constitution is the law of the land, okay, well, that applies to you. They're not going to suddenly say, oh, well, the Constitution really isn't any good. We really did a fraud on you. They're not going to blow the game, okay? So I hold them to the terms of their game, and uh, and it works. Do you have a license, driver's license? What's that? Do you have a driver's license? I do now, yeah. I went ahead and got one because, you know, but technically, let's say I get a traffic ticket, okay? Yeah. Well, the the driver's license is only good for commerce, so I would go to court and I would say I was not engaged in a licensable activity. This doesn't apply. And where's the jurisdiction to step outside of Congress? Uh, I mean, outside of commerce, all right? That's how I would argue the case. I'd just say, well, but I would do a counterclaim. I wouldn't just do it as a defense because as a defense, I would get overridden. They want the money. But if you do a counterclaim, then they have to pay attention to you. So that is how I would argue my counterclaim is saying, well, you know, this guy violated my right to travel. And that's all I was doing to travel. There's no authority for subjecting me to the rules of commerce. Bill, you don't take but it see, oath in a continent, continental uh, uh, United States or continental uh, of America? Well, like I said, I don't get involved in that, you know, and I don't care. I, you know, I, I was just not... wondering, because I wanted to find out if they did, where would I go to about to get it? And I'm well, sure they don't. I, I just told you. you to the record keeper for the organization. If you're talking about the state, it would be the Secretary of State. If you're talking about the city, it would be the city clerk. If you're talking about the Congress, you would, or I mean the, the federal government, you would go to the Secretary of State. And you can look at the legislative records if you want to see what's what. You can research it out, but it's not relevant to my case. You know, I don't care if the judge has an oath of office or not. It's simply not relevant. The purpose of a, of, of uh, an oath is to bring the power of God and morality into the mind of the person giving the oath to make him perform more honestly, make him make proper decisions. But when I set up a court of record, he can't make any decision. So what difference does an oath make? I don't need an oath of office, not for him. Well, I I was just kind of trying to go through the, you know, I've written to the Secretary of State. and uh, Sure. No lawyer, no judges in the state has a license to practice law in the state. So that's what I was Well, that's true. That's true. But then that doesn't mean there's no authorization procedure at hand. Look. You have what's called the separation of powers doctrine. That means that the legislature, the executive branch, 
and the judicial branch are three separate branches of government, and no one branch has any authority over another branch. It doesn't exist. So the licenses are issued by, by the executive branch. Well, they can't license an attorney because an attorney is operating in the judicial branch. So it's not even possible. And so as far as I know, especially in California, no attorney has an actual license from the state of California. But I'll tell you what they do have. What they have is an, a recognition that they know the law, and that recognition comes from the Supreme Court of California. Well, well didn't, so, didn't, didn't uh, George Washington uh, get rid of all the judges with the Judiciary Act? Bill? I don't know that. I don't know that. I couldn't answer that question. But it doesn't matter because the judges cannot make any decisions in my court of record. I don't care if you got rid of them or not. Well, there's no, there's no, there's not any judges. They're just justices. All right, call them justices, but call them anything you want. But he, he can't make any decisions in my court. Yeah, he sits there on the bench. He's only I let, I, I allow him. I allow him to direct traffic. I allow him to say which case gets called next. Allow him to say who gets to speak next because it's a simple cut and dried procedure as to who gets to speak when in a court procedure. So I don't mind him doing that, but I don't let him make any decisions relating to the case itself. So it doesn't matter if they have an oath of office or not. It doesn't matter if he's called a justice or a judge or a referee or whatever. They, anything they want, I don't care. Okay, well, okay. I, I just wanted to know. I mean, it's, sure. You know, that, there ain't no. I'm not. Other, I'm not. Yeah. Look, I'm not saying you don't have a uh, a historically valid re point. You know. R correct. And I appreciate but, all that you've done to help the people because you've really woken up a lot of people, and that's that's a blessing from our heavenly Father above. You know, to get great. and teach people. Because they don't well, have to be ruled by this so-called government that we have. Well, in the lower left-hand corner, 1215.org, there's a copy left link. And if you click on that, you'll get instructions on how to download the entire website to your computer. And if you want, you're welcome to set up your own website. Copy everything you want and then modify it as you see fit. I'm just well, happy to share I appreciate you, Bill, and uh, uh, have a have a blessed day. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, next up and last, I guess we're going to call it a night after this last caller. Is that okay with okay. you, Bill? Sure. All righty, sure. Budman. At your service. Budman, you're back on. Thank you, Angela. Uh, Bill, have you ever had someone to bring in the original 13th Amendment before the court and use it to bar the attorneys that are in there? No. No, and I don't care about that because the attorneys, look, the way I see it is anybody has a right to counsel of their choice. So if I'm suing somebody and he wants to have somebody speak for him, I say go for it, you know. 
I don't care if he's a qualified attorney or not. If he's got a point, I'm willing to listen to it. But I am the judge. <laughs> I I make the decisions, okay? So, you know, I'm not going to deny somebody their choice of who they have confidence in to speak for them. It's okay. 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 Yeah, sure. Okay. So, right. yeah, you know, the, the judges, by the way, are in California anyway, the judges are automatically uh, have their membership suspended in the Bar Association. They're no longer, judges are not members of the Bar in California. They, um, there is a requirement, uh, a legislated requirement, that a judge must be, uh, have been an attorney for a minimum, I think, of five years, something like that, before he's eligible to become a judge. I question whether or not that's actually constitutional. It's but it not, is matter it? Anyway. That, you shouldn't have to. Well, well, anyway. well, it doesn't matter anyway, because in a court of record, he can't make any decisions anyway. So, so what difference does it make? <laughs> All right, the court of records are rather, the, a court of record is a rather cool, a great idea. You know, it, it really gets rid of judicial bias by getting rid of the judge. And you go to the Superior Court in California? That's a Superior Court in name only. It's actually functioning as an inferior court. It could well, be a Superior it, Court. How does it, it become a be. Superior Court? Well, by being a court of record. And how does that Follow happen? Do you speak it into existence? or? Well, it, it's up to the plaintiff. The plaintiff has to declare that it's a court of record. Right. If, if okay. a, you see, they take advantage of your ignorance. So if you are a normal person doing a normal lawsuit with or without an attorney, doesn't matter, you go into court, you're citing all these codes and so forth. The codes are not real law. They're just, you know, they're just little rules made up by the legislature, but they're not law. That's why they're called codes. And so you go into there and then the judge sits there and you believe that you're that you must rely on the judge for a decision. Not but when you understand what a court of record is, the judge cannot make any decisions. But if you don't. If you don't do that, if you don't understand that, the judge will muscle in and he will start being authoritative. And if you fail to object, that means you agree. So he then makes a decision and everybody goes away either happy or unhappy, but they don't question the judge. So what the judge does is perfectly legal if you let him get away with it. Failure to object means you agree. Now, if you know what you're doing, you would come in and specifically specify that your court is a court of record. That makes it a real superior court. Otherwise, it's an inferior court. Don't confuse the name superior court with the function superior court. Okay. Yes, sir. Well, you know, it's been a good call. Everybody liked it. We had a lot of people on, okay. and uh, I think we learned something. I uh, I hope you don't okay. wait a long time before you come on again. I'll hit you well, up it, soon. Well, it's, 
it's up to you to draft me. Yes, I will. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm happy, always happy to, you know, I, I'm loquacious. We'll <laughs> see what's new with you in a couple of months, okay? Okay, sure. All right. Sure, anytime. Happy New Year. Oh, right. wait, wait, wait. I wanted to ask you, what do you think about Trump and the election? I think he's great. I think he's great. I think he's he he has no commitments to anybody. He's a good negotiator. He knows how to get people to cooperate. I mean, you know, before he was even in office, already there's corporations saying, "Hey, we're coming back to the United States." That's something. You know, he's creating yeah. jobs. You know, uh, Walmart is planning to hire a hundred thousand. No, I'm sorry. It's they're planning to hire ten thousand more employees. Um, Amazon is planning to hire 100,000 more employees. Uh, he's shutting off this H-1B stuff where, you know, they they bring in computer programmers and highly skilled people from foreign countries, people that are willing to work very cheap. He's shutting that off. He's saying we're going to use our own people. So, you know, he's doing all the right moves, and, and this is only his first week. I know. <laughs> I'm so, so pleased. You know, yeah. yeah. I, 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 you know, and, it, and, and he is going to screw up. I know he will because that's the nature of humans. He, he'll make mistakes along the way, but I think by and large, I think he's on the right path. Oh, I love the fact that he's using the Internet to communicate with the people. And bypassing the media. I love that. It's like he hates fake news and all like that. And I think it's wonderful what he's doing, even though he's probably going to screw up, like you said. You know, he might put his foot in his mouth, but even still, it's honest. It's true. Well, I'll tell you something else. He he just did a a couple days ago, or maybe it was a day ago, but whatever it was. He, uh, uh, you know, the, the press room, has 49 chairs in it, okay? Right. And and you have this little club here that decides who can come into the room and who can't. So uh, Trump has said, well, we're not going to use that room anymore. We got this other room in this other building, and it, it holds, I think, 200 people. And oh, we're wow. going to let the bloggers in. We're going to let the Internet <laughs> people in and other <laughs> alternative sources. <laughs> oh, I love and, that. I love that. Yeah. That's great. And the, the mainstream media is really pissed off. I <laughs> they're know. not everything happy about on, I, every, Yeah, they're real liberal with showing the protests across the country. You know, people that are protesting him, which they're doing a lot here in California. But uh, I don't watch it. it you know, I, I walk out of the room, I turn the channel. I'm not into you know, that it's at really, all. It's really funny this uh, million woman march that they had. This, uh-huh. this this is a, this is a real laugh because they're tired of these white guys causing all these problems and they want Sharia law. Oh right, sure. <laughs> right, and, and crazy if, if they ever read it, they should find out what it means before they say that. I don't think you even don't have think. to read it, and you you just read this the mainstream media news. And you know the little bit that they publish there, you can see women absolutely have no rights under Sharia law. Right. Yeah, you know, and 
and here these women are out there. It, it's uh, like a cult, okay? Mm. It's like a, a, a belief system that's totally unexamined. And they, right. they think that, you know, a religion. Oh, somebody said it's bad, therefore it's bad, you know, and they don't yeah. even know what they're saying. But women have more rights in the United States. I, I mean, then there's nothing close to it in in uh, the Middle East, nothing close to what we have here for women. And I sent out an email one time. I had a photograph. There was this uh, woman who she was carrying a baby and she had uh, a couple of young kids with her and she uh, was barefoot and very poorly dressed. I mean, just rags, really. And she's walking on the sand like she was a refugee, okay? And around her, people walking in the same direction, all men wearing tennis shoes, not paying any attention to her, and and the expression on her face, she was totally, totally suffering from the stress of carrying her child through the heat and this sort of thing, and not one of them would help her, you know. And there's yeah. absolutely, this picture absolutely showed the disrespect that the Middle East culture has for women. Yeah, yeah I know. I agree, but... You know, they're playing follow the leader, a lot of these women. They don't have a clue. They just, you know, it yeah. was like when they voted in Obama. Nobody The black folks voted for Obama. The majority of them voted for him simply because he was black. Yeah. Not because he was going to do anything or, you know, maybe he promised a lot, but they didn't know anything about him. He came from out of nowhere, and he's black. So, I mean, I got into plenty of arguments with people over that. I said, no, well, I'm not going to vote for him. I don't even know who he is, you know. Same thing with Hillary. I wouldn't vote for her cause, just because she's a woman. And that's what the majority of the women out here, these protesters, are doing. They're stupid. They want to vote well, for her because she's a woman? No, no. You know, you know, the, old, you know the old Chinese uh, proverb, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> well, that's true. Right? You know, well, we'll see. How he does, you know, and then there's, I'm also of the belief that if he won the election, the powers that be wanted him there. So you know, the, Alex, to... the Alex Jones show um, recently put on a, uh, some film clips where they, they had, inter- before the election happened, when the Democrats thought it was a shoe-in, that they would win the election, they interviewed them. And one of the questions they were asked is what the what the Democrats thought the Republicans should do, how they, you know, when they lose the election. And the response was, is, well, they ought to accept, you know, this is democracy and and they ought to accept the results. I mean, it, it's a fair and square and that uh, uh, to to resist it would be undermining the democracy, okay? Well, then funny how they that went back, you know, shoe has they, flipped. They went, <laughs> they, they went back after the election to the very same people that they interviewed before and asked them 
what should be done. And boy, they were all for resisting and throwing up every roadblock they could to Trump. <laughs> you know, totally opposite. Yeah, I know. It's it's uh, you know, it's 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 a joke. You know, yep. I I I hate people sometimes. I think, oh, I hate people, but I don't hate all people. Just no. the morons, you know. I just it's I don't know. But it's not their fault, you know. It's the school system. It's their parents. It's, you know. Right. True. It takes a village to make a moron, and they've done a pretty good job of it. <laughs> there is a book right. written called The Making of a Moron. Oh, really? <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great little book. This this uh, uh, writer took many different jobs. And he was writing his book, and, and he was noticing the effect of jobs on the mentality of the people. And he called it The Making of a Moron. It was really a great little book. Oh, very sounds short. like it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he said the more mundane the job was, then the more moronic the people became. And, and he gave us the worst example was the paper mills, the paper royals, the jobs were such so humdrum because they had to watch this continuous flow of paper through the mill, monitoring it. But it was just a really super boring job. Well, that's what they want. They want a bunch of imbeciles. They don't want, George Carlin said it, they don't want critical thinkers. That's correct. They, yeah, George Carlin really hit the nail on the head. He was great. Anyway, well, no more questions. What do you huh? think? Okay. No, I, I can't. I don't want to keep you any longer. We're pushing the okay. third hour here, so um, yeah, we'll call it a night. And you have a great weekend. Thank you so much again for coming on. We always appreciate you coming. And uh, happy birthday! I don't know when's your birthday, Bill. Oh, you missed it. It was last November. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Happy belated birthday. Matter. Well, it doesn't but, matter anyway because I was very young when I was born. Yeah. Zero. <laughs> All right. Have fun. Have a great weekend. Right. Everybody have fun. We'll see you next time. Right. And um, take care of each other. Good night. Good night. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.